put this short. No matter what, I like to work my way through um, various historical biographies. I've been working through Ulysses S. Grant for a while. It's about a thousand pages long. You know, every one of them it seems like it's about a thousand pages long. Forty-eight hours of listening. I catch about fifteen minutes at a time. So you know, that's a few days uh, trying to do that. But anyway, Luke definitely gives a lot of history. And remember, Matthew is attaching the life of Jesus to prophecy, fulfilled prophecy. Luke is grainier than that. He is uh, on feet on the ground, boots on the ground, if you will. He attaches the life of Jesus to human life and interaction. And that's what we see here in Luke 2, the second half, really beginning in verse 21. Last week we did the first 20 verses. So this morning, this evening, verses 21 through 40. And let's stand together. It's a long passage. So let's stand. And uh, it's interesting, too, because the verses, there are many verses, and there are long verses. So we'll be standing for a while. I hope your feet don't get tired. After you sit down, I'll still stand. But anyway, Luke 22, beginning verse 21, these are the words of God. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the death by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him, and Simeon blessed them, and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with the husband seven years from her virginity, and she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord, and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Let's pray. Lord God, as we consider tonight uh, this early <clears throat> pre 
presentation of Christ in the temple and what all happened there, all by your divine uh, plan. I pray that our hearts would be filled with joy and adoration at our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would sit at his feet and we would worship him and that we would be in awe of him and who he is. And I pray, Lord, that our, as we see him in his glory, that our gratitude and our devotion would increase, that we would be committed to our Lord Jesus Christ in all things. I pray that you would bless this uh, evening together in the word and that um, you would do your work through the preached word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Paul tells us that Jesus was made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. This is important for us in understanding the Lord Jesus. This is not, Paul was not just creating a fiction here. He was not presenting a legendary uh, depiction of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are not just words and titles. And sometimes I think we look at uh, the really extraordinary things that are said about Jesus, and we look at them almost like they're just finding, you know, like grabbing whatever um, big, important-sounding words and phrases that they can find to praise the Lord Jesus with. Jesus was made under the law, and we see here in Luke exactly what the Bible means by that, that Jesus willingly placed himself under the law of Moses in that time. Luke describes this event as part of the story of Christ's birth. He attaches it immediately to Christ's birth, in fact. <clears throat> and we see then that Jesus became a son so that you and I also could be sons and daughters. He came under the law to redeem us who were under the law. Our Lord was presented to the Lord as a human being, as one who also belonged to the Lord. And that is extraordinary when you remember that Jesus is the virgin-born Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. He is God incarnate, the Word made flesh and dwelt among us. That he did not need to be placed in submission under the Father because he already was. That he did not need to be brought in or treated like a human being because he was the perfect Lamb of God. And yet, in becoming a man, Jesus did everything that was required of men. He didn't act like he was something special, some special case. He didn't make exceptions for himself. He didn't carve out space for himself, like to live by his own rules. He did not do that. Now, this goes against our very nature. One of the, and this is true of us in America today, that we are ultra-autonomous. No one's going to tell me what to do. I'll do what I choose to do. So we don't live in submission to the Word of God, under the Word of God. We don't do that. 
does what is right in his own eyes. And I don't mean that in a judge's sense. I mean that even as Christians that <clears throat> quite often we are a law unto ourselves. We are, we are living our own way, doing our own thing without regard for what God says in his word. And I want you to understand that if anybody, if anyone ever, any human being in, in the history of the world had a right to live above the law, outside of the law, it was Jesus. He was right and righteous, but he, from the beginning of his days, placed himself under the laws and customs of his day, and particularly the law that God had given. Remember, the Gospels opened the, the Old Testament, the New Testament, but really they are the bridge between the Old Testament and the New. When Jesus came, he entered an Old Testament, Old Covenant Israel, and it was his death, in fact, that brought about the New Covenant, the New Testament. So Jesus' life was the end of the Old Covenant. The end of the Old Testament ended in his death. And with his death came a New Testament, a new will, if you will. Uh, just as the book of Hebrews tells us that the will is enforced upon the death of the testator. The Bible says it that way. That it was, therefore, we are living. So the inheritance was passed to Jesus and from him to us. So this is, this is what Luke is presenting to us. Jesus in his humanity came under the law of God fully and completely. He entered into our condition in every way. He dove deep so that he could raise us up and exalt us and glorify us into eternal life. Everything that happened in this passage of scripture happened because Jesus was not taking shortcuts, wasn't living by a different set of rules, was not the exception. In fact, Jesus himself told us that he did not come to skirt the law, he did not come to throw off the law. Matthew 5, 17, think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. <clears throat> and we see his own commitment to fulfilling the law and that he chose human parents who would be faithful to follow the law, even though they were raising, and they knew this, they were raising the Son of God. But again, Joseph and Mary didn't say, hold on, hold on, we don't have to do that. Our baby is the Messiah. Our baby is the Son of God. Now, anyone who has been a parent knows that when you are a parent, your children are the exception, right? I mean, all those standards that you had for all the other kids, 
don't apply to your kids, right? All the other kids, they're bad, and they're a bad influence on my kids, who would be perfect if it wasn't for your kids. And I say that with all sincerity. And whatever rules are applied are needed for those other kids. But for my kids, we could make an exception and we could have, right? I mean, this is the way we are. Think how worse you would be if your firstborn son was the son of God. I mean, you talk about an insufferable mother, right? But not Mary and Joseph. See, you know, God was, God knew in his selection of a, a man and a woman, he knew what he was doing. He knew that Mary would absolutely not act like she was entitled or her son was entitled. <clears throat> but we see this commitment in choosing human parents who would be faithful to follow the law even though they were raising the Son of God. Of course, when Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, he meant more than just that he came to obey the law. He meant also that he is the fullest sense of the law, that all the righteousness of the law is embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. All He displays all the holiness, all the righteousness, all the goodness of the law in his most holy person. Christ is, Paul said, the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. That means, the word end there doesn't mean um, that the law is no more. Doesn't mean the annihilation of the law, the elimination of the law, doesn't mean that that the law has now ended. That's not what it means. But the end of the law means that Christ is the point aimed at in the law. He is the objective of the law. He is, as one said it, the purpose goal of the law. The law then pointed to him as the source of the God-provided righteousness it could not supply. That's why Paul in Galatians 3.24 says that the law is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. That's the point that Paul is making as well. Romans 3 tells us that the law is not there to make you righteous, but in fact to reveal, to expose your unrighteousness, to show you your own unrighteousness. And then Romans 4 says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to them that believe. So the law is seen in its fullest extent in the holiness and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is able to be that because when he was a man, he perfectly submitted to the law of God. That's an impossibility for you and for me. Because we, we sin regularly. 
we, we are constantly driven by false motives, deceived. We, we, in spite of our best intentions, behave in ways that we should not, in sinful ways. <coughs> and so the Lord Jesus Christ is the image that we need to be refashioned, remade according. And this is what the Bible is teaching us here. So we see Christ from the earliest days, Jesus Christ, scrupulous about the law. <clears throat> the law's purpose is completed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and this is possible because from the beginning of the law onward, our Lord fulfilled every part of the law, every part. And when he had fulfilled every other part of the law so that there was no other part for him to fulfill, then Jesus was qualified to meet the law's demands for justice so that God could be just in punishing sin. And Jesus Christ became then the sacrifice that completely fulfilled the law, the sacrifice that the law called for, Jesus became the fullest sacrifice. That, by the way, is the point of the book of Hebrews. That all those sacrifices and all those offerings could never absolve us of our sin. But Jesus, by one offering of himself, perfected forever those who are Christ. This is this is a glorious thing, what we see in the Word of God. By the way, this is why we need preaching. So that we can have these things rehearsed and set before us so that we can see the connections and see the logic of the Word of God. It's a beautiful thing. So the glory of this presentation in the temple is that Jesus pleased the Father in every possible way from the beginning of his life to the end of his life. Jesus, in fact, saved us by his obedience to the law, as Paul said in Romans 5, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. We are made righteous by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is in this sense that we are saved by his life, then. Our text highlights the earliest steps of obedience. In fact, Luke gives a lot of detail about these early steps. Jesus was on a mission from the very first day of his life. He came to save the lost, and he never wavered from that purpose. Even in his weakest moment, the weakest time of his life when he was an infant, when he could not feed himself, when, he had, when his head needed to be supported like any other baby's head, Jesus still was mighty in obedience to the law of God. He was set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. We can divide this passage into three parts. First, Jesus was presented in the temple. Second, Jesus was worshipped in the temple. And thirdly, Jesus grew into manhood. Let's look at each of these. 
Jesus, first of all, presented in the temple. Our text describes three ceremonies that were performed. It can be hard to see the second and third. They look like one ceremony. But the first of these ceremonies was on the eighth day and the other two on the 41st day of his life. On the eighth day, Jesus was circumcised. The law said then that the firstborn male belonged to the Lord, and because the firstborn were spared in the Passover in Egypt, therefore God required on the 41st day, the parents were to pay five shekels to redeem their firstborn son. That, was, that price was established in Leviticus 27.6, and apparently the price did not change despite inflation. Then the third ceremony was that Mary was purified. Now the law required a 40-day purification if the firstborn child was a boy. 80 days, by the way, if the firstborn was a girl. At the end of this purification, she was to offer two offerings, a sin offering and a burnt offering. The, the reason for this was because the mother was considered to be defiled because she had given birth to a sinner. So that's the way the Old Testament taught them to treat it. <clears throat> the sin offering removed the defilement attached to the beginning of a new life. The burnt offering marked the restoration, her restoration, to communion with God. Now, <clears throat> She could send, and, and the law allowed for the woman to send in this uh, money for the sacrifice to the, to the temple. So this is the way it would work. Uh, they would send in the price of the offering, uh, or the woman sometimes, if they lived close, or if they were very de de devoted, dedicated uh, to the Lord, the woman would go and she would make the offering herself. But that was not required. And um, she would give the price of that offering, uh, <clears throat> and she would it would be deposited. There were 13 trumpet-shaped chests in the um, court of the women outside of the temple, and that money would be deposited there. Alfred Edersheim tells us that uh, the two turtle doves or two young pigeons were the standard offering given by the average family in Israel. The very wealthy could offer two lambs instead. Now, really, again, you weren't offering these, actually. You were giving the price of the offering for these. So the lamb would cost about $2 uh, compared to about 16 cents for the turtle doves or the pigeons. Edersheim tells us, that at a designated time each day, the chests were open, half of its contents would be applied to <clears throat> the lambs and half of it to turtle doves or pigeons. And this was done to avoid any kind of, uh, there was not to be any kind of show of wealth uh, or display in the temple. There was not to be any kind of shaming people who did not have or separating the halves from the have-nots, and so this would all be done anonymously. The offerings would be given. 
if the woman was very devoted, she would be there. Now, Mary was there because she was coming from Bethlehem. It was just a few hours away, not a few hours, a few miles away, so it was fairly easy for her to get there. Uh, and so, but this is, this is an important thing. Joseph and Mary did not buy their son the special offering. They didn't say, well, we have a special son, so we should get him the special offering. They didn't do that. And they also didn't say, well, I think God would be pleased by our frugality. They were not trying to impress God with anything. They gave the offering that fit their station in life. Mary and Joseph understood their culture. And according to their culture, they were not wealthy enough to give that $2. And so they gave the 16 cents for these turtle doves, the pigeons. So Jesus, and this is the point, Jesus was an ordinary Jewish baby, raised in a poor but ordinary Jewish family, which honored the law of Moses and the customs of the day. His circumcision formally brought him under the law as a man, in the covenant with God as a Jew, and introduced him as the savior of mankind because <clears throat> in his circumcision, that would be the official, the formal naming of the baby. And the Bible tells us that at that time, he was formally named Jesus according to the word of the angel because he shall save his people from their sins. So this, this the day of his circumcision is the day when Jesus is formally introduced as the Savior of the world. But his circumcision also brought him under the law as a man and into covenant with God as a Jew. Now he was circumcised even though the ceremony really, if you think about it, had no, no meaning, no purpose for him in his life. He had no sin nature to be put away. He had no body of sin to be destroyed. Never for a moment was he anywhere outside of the covenant with God. In fact, his relationship with God is not a covenant relationship. His relationship with God is an eternal relationship, uh, a, a, an eternal singular essence. If the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one God. Not in covenant relationship, but a holy God. Yet for our sakes, Jesus, as a man, fulfilled the law of circumcision, and in doing so, communicates three things to us. First of all, by being circumcised, Jesus obligated himself to fulfill the whole law. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law, Galatians 5 and verse 3. Secondly, by being circumcised, Jesus made himself the pledge of our justification. And he received the sign of circumcision, the Bible says, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had being yet uncircumcised. Speaking of Abraham, that he might be the father of all them that believe, Though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. So Jesus made himself really the completion, the conclusion, the, the, the fullest sense 
of Abraham's circumcision in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, by being circumcised, Jesus made himself the pledge of our sanctification. Colossians 2.11, in whom ye also are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So Christ's circumcision applies to you and to me as well and is a pledge of our sanctification. So that happened on the eighth day. Then on the 41st day after his birth, Jesus was presented to the Lord and redeemed. The Passover in Egypt put all the firstborn under a sentence of death and granted a pardon to all who had the mark of blood on their doorposts. The symbolism in this is very evident to all of us, but surely what was symbolized in the Passover would not apply to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, again, was never a sinner. So here's what he's doing. He's doing things that don't directly, immediately apply to him because he became a man. He entered our condition. So what he is doing here, he is declaring that I am also a man. <clears throat> You, you have to think, the, the idea was that Joseph and Mary would pay coin to redeem their son. And you have to think, what coin could ever redeem the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ? What could Mary and Joseph ever do to dedicate Jesus to God? Jesus was sent by God. And yet, God intended that Mary and Joseph should do with his son what they had been taught to do with a firstborn son. By this same babe, Mary and Joseph themselves would need to be redeemed. But for now, God wanted his son to be redeemed by the five shekels paid by Joseph and Mary just as with every other firstborn son in the land of Israel. Jesus came directly out of the bosom of the Father, and yet, according to verse 22, he was presented to the Father by the very hands of the men he came saved. This is extraordinary, what's happening here. But remember that when Jesus was presented, he was the incarnate God, he was man. He was presented as a man to God. It would not do for Jesus to disregard all of the law and then come and save us after having disregarded the law. That would mean that the law of God was really just a fiction imposed upon people, just arbitrary sets of rules. But Jesus, in fulfilling it, is saying to us, that no, these laws had meaning, they had purpose, they were important, they were vital. And that's why I also come under these things. All this Jesus intentionally surrendered to do by entering the world the way he did. On the 41st day, the other ceremony was that Mary was purified. For our sake, laws were fulfilled 
that according to the design and intent of the law itself were unnecessary for Jesus. Laws that did not rightly apply to him. And he did this so that he could fulfill all righteousness, so he could demonstrate his unique qualifications to be our Savior. Then the second thing we see in the passage is that Jesus was worshipped in the temple. Simeon was a rare man in his day. He served perpetually in the temple in Jerusalem. Now Luke uses the imperfect tense to indicate that he kept on serving God. God the Holy Spirit made him know that he wouldn't see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. On the day when Mary and Joseph were presented Jesus in the temple, the Holy Spirit led Simeon into the temple. And as soon as Simeon saw Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, he knew somehow that this was the Messiah that he was looking at. Luke tells us four important things about Simeon. First of all, he was just and devout. That is, he walked in his integrity, both towards God and man. Second, that he waited for the consolation in Israel. Spoken of in Isaiah 40, comfort ye, comfort ye, the peop my people, saith to God. So this is a unique thing in Israel. He was one genuinely waiting for the Messiah, looking for the Messiah. And I say that was unique in Israel. It should be evident to us, having recently rehearsed all the information the Bible gives us about the birth of Christ, it should be very plain and evident to us that all the chief priests and scribes and religious authorities in Israel were consumed with the Messiah on a purely academic level. There was no heart interest in the Messiah whatsoever. And that is so evident in just in the fact that they did not travel to Bethlehem to see for themselves. That tells you what you need to know. So Simeon is unique in that way. Thirdly, the Holy Ghost was upon him. Luke uses the imperfect tense again to indicate that this was a constant thing, that the Holy Ghost kept being upon him. And fourthly, he was told that he would not see death till he had seen the Messiah. Now we assume because of that, that Simeon was old. Plus, Simeon is paired with Anna, who obviously is old. But the Bible doesn't say anything about the age of Simeon at all. Maybe he was a young man, and, but now he could die any day. When Simeon greeted Mary and Joseph and the babe in the temple, he took Jesus into his arms and delivered a prophetic blessing. First, he blessed God. Now he could depart in peace because his eyes had seen the salvation. Notice, by the way, that Simeon doesn't say, my eyes have seen the Messiah. He doesn't say, my eyes have seen the Savior. He says, my eyes have seen my salvation. He's holding this little baby. He has to hold the baby. Now that's faith, right? He has to support the baby, and he knows that this baby that he is holding is the content of his salvation. That's faith. That's the kind of man who is praising the Messiah in the temple. Simeon recognizes three things about this salvation that he's holding in this little bundle of joy. God prepared it before the face of all people, not for Israel alone. Luke shows us what the Messiah is to Simeon. 
For mine eyes have seen, notice, my salvation. But then he shows us what the Messiah will be to the world as well. For the Gentiles, this salvation, wrapped in baby clothes, is a light to lighten them. Literally, Jesus is, for the Gentiles, the light of revelation. As Isaiah prophesied in chapter 49 and verse 6, and he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. For the Gentiles he is a light to enlighten. And for Israel, this baby is their glory. And according to God's plan, salvation comes to the Gentiles through Israel. By the way, it's, it's just interesting to me, all the things, when you look in all the things that are said about Jesus Christ, how much of this is applied to national Israel, to ethnic Israel. This is important for us to understand that the Messiah is their glory. The reason Israel holds a sacred place in our hearts is because our Messiah is a Jew. Because he is ethnic Israel. While Joseph and Mary marveled at these words, Simeon announced a prophetic blessing on them both with a special word for Mary. This child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. Our acceptance or rejection of God is measured by our acceptance or rejection of Jesus Christ. If someone tells you that, oh yeah, I love God, I worship God, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't believe Jesus is God, they have rejected God. That's the way the Bible says it. This child is set for a sign which shall be spoken against. The Greek word there, sign, is semia, which is usually translated miracle. Semia is saying that Jesus himself is a miraculous sign. That his life will be a sign to Israel because of his mighty words, which, by the way, is what Jesus pointed to. When Israel wouldn't believe in him, he said, if you won't take my word for it, believe me at least for the works Sake, notice what you see me doing that no man has done before. A sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, Mary. I don't think we even need an imagination to understand the way the crucifixion of Jesus Christ would hit Mary. All the disciples forsook him, but Mary did not. I cannot imagine, as a father, standing and watching my son abused, tormented, ridiculed, hated, despised, beaten, nailed to the cross, crucified. How could a mother bear that? Mary stood by Jesus, supported him, 
and sought any way she could to comfort him. And Simeon said the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Jesus himself is the test. He is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to the world. <clears throat> Men have to choose. You know, there are certain polarizing people. I won't name names here. Just think Donald Trump, all right? Polarizing. You either love him or you hate him. And the Bible is saying that Jesus is that. Not that Jesus is Donald Trump. Not that Donald Trump is Jesus. Or even like Jesus. Not at all. Not saying that. But saying that Jesus is that kind of polarizing figure. That he is a test. The test. For mankind. Right there. <clears throat> that people either are for him or against him. You know, we've noticed this, that the nicest people in the world, when they reject Jesus Christ, become bitter and angry. It reveals, their rejection of Christ reveals the rebellion of their hearts, despite their niceness. Now, according to Luke, a woman named Anna joined Simeon in worshiping Jesus. She came along, in fact, right at the time when Simeon is pronouncing these Things on Jesus. And in doing so, she authenticated Simeon's words and confirmed this blessing to Mary and Joseph. Luke describes Anna's character, so we'll know that this wasn't just some random woman in the temple who became a little giddy when she heard Simeon saying such elevated things. She was a prophetess. She was the daughter of Phanuel. She was of the tribe of Asher, so she must have been from a family of distinction since most of the ten tribes had lost their identity. She was of great age. She was married for seven years before she was widowed. And then either she was 84 years old when Jesus was born, or she had been a widow for 84 years, which would make her well over 100. <clears throat> she would have been well known in the temple. The 37th verse tells us that she departed not from the temple literally, the Greek says she kept on not leaving the temple, kept on not leaving. She served God with fastings and prayers night and day. So for at least 60 years, maybe as long as 84 years, Anna had been a fixture in the court of women there at the temple. Everyone who came to worship in Israel, in Jerusalem, knew who Anna was. So again, this is what I'm saying to you. There's so many indications in Matthew and Luke in their account of the birth of Christ that these things were not done in a corner. That it's not hidden. Jesus, this, this was not a subversive thing, what was done here. Any Jew who went to the temple to worship would know who Anna was. She was a pious woman well-respected, well-known. She was a prophetess. When she heard Simeon's blessing on the babe and his parents, she added her voice of praise and thanks to the Lord. So the fact that both a man and a woman meet baby Jesus in the temple sends a very clear message. Jesus is the Savior for all mankind, young and old, 
rich and poor, without regard for nationality, without regard for gender. Anna took her praise and rejoicing one step further. She told others. She told all those who looked for redemption in Israel. And then thirdly, Jesus grew into manhood. Jesus grew in physical stature from infant to toddler to young man to teenager and into adulthood. But he didn't just grow physically. He grew in maturity, in understanding. He be really, again, in every possible way, he became like us, except for one thing we're going to get into in just a moment, but we know what that is. He was not sinful. He was not fallen like us. He grew the way we grew. We grow. He matured the way we mature. Same way. And he did this so that he might save us. We can assume that as Jesus grew, God made him, really I think God unfolded for Jesus who he was and what he was sent to do. So I don't think that, I mean, Jesus, when he was born, I, I don't think he was born talking. We were down at the uh, uh, Christmas Village in Ogden, and we um, walked by the, uh, uh, the nativity scene. Any of you do that this, this season? Go and look for that. And there's the baby Jesus, full head of hair, raising his arms like this. I'm thinking, that's a lot of maturity for a newborn baby. Uh, Jesus was not born talking. He was not, like he didn't, you know, know the Sermon on the Mount by heart already when he was born. All of this was uncovered, unfolded to Jesus that throughout his youth, God was slowly unveiling these things to him. As a result, Jesus waxed strong in spirit. <clears throat> the verb is in the imperfect, is an imperfect passive, in fact. This was accomplished progressively by the inward working of the Holy Spirit. In spirit points to both the location of his strength, that he waxed strong, strong in the realm of his spirit, but also it points to the cause of his strength. He waxed strong by means of the Holy Spirit. Unlike any man ever before him or since, Jesus had the Holy Spirit without measure. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. John 3:34. As the Spirit worked in Jesus of Nazareth, he kept on, that's the sense of the imperfect, he kept on waxing stronger and stronger. That's what the Bible is saying. He was every bit the man that any one of us are, and yet he had one major advantage that we don't have. He did not have a sin nature to overcome. <clears throat> he was not burdened by inward corruption. So 
with that eliminated, with that gone, Jesus really dis demonstrates what mankind would have been if Adam had not sinned. There was no restraint on his growing, on his maturing. See, what, what holds our children back, by the way, that's, we need to understand this as parents. What holds our children back is indwelling sin, inward corruption. The cause of maturity in our children is sin, period. Sin is the source of all of our problems. That's why, by the way, the notion that's so, I, I just am boggled by how many people, how many Christians think that repentance is something that comes after you're saved, that really all that's needed is for you to change your mind and believe God. That's it. No regard for sin, no worry about sin, no concern about sin whatsoever. It, it, it baffles me when sin is our problem. Sin caused the rift between us and God. Sin is the offense that sent Jesus to the cross. My sin. And if I'm not even willing to give that up or to address my own sin, how can I think for a moment that God would save me? How could I think that? It's it's beyond comprehension to me. The reason men don't believe in Jesus, he told us that men don't come to the light because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So in coming to Christ, we cannot pretend that our sin is irrelevant to our faith in Jesus Christ. But faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin when we're born again. That new birth is demonstrated in that faith and repentance. In his childhood, Jesus didn't display any of that weakness of understanding or will that is so common in children. By means of God's Holy Spirit, his humanity was marked by a vigor never before seen in a child. He reasoned strongly, his will was mighty, his judgment penetrating, his discernment sophisticated, he wasn't easily manipulated or given to fits of temper or selfishness so common in children. He was an extraordinary man. There was no level of incompetence in him. And he was filled with wisdom. Luke highlights one important way that Jesus waxed stronger and stronger in spirit. By being filled with wisdom. The book of Proverbs tells us that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. Now again, this goes to what I'm saying. Folly is the thing. And by the way, folly and unbelief are always associated with each other. All right, so foolishness, folly, is what prevents children from growing into wisdom. You can't, wisdom and folly are mutually exclusive. In every area where you are a fool, you are not wise. 
in every area where you are wise, you are not a fool. And so, in order to become wise, one must shed the folly of his nature. Jesus had no folly to put away. In the heart of a sinner, the Bible teaches that it is necessary for the folly to be driven out by means of the rod of reproof. This must be accomplished before wisdom can take root in the heart, and wisdom must take root in the heart before there can be any fruit. Jesus had a massive head start on the rest of humanity in that he was not hobbled by folly whatsoever. There was no foolishness in him, no need to drive it out of his heart. This means that instruction could bear immediate fruit in his life. Think about that. Think about that. I mean, what, what a difference that is. And again, this all goes to point to his exclusive ability to be our Savior because of these things. The soil was prepared. Instruction could produce results unheard of in a normal human being. And the result was a young man who at the age of 12, and this is what the remainder of the chapter is about, could go to the temple and confound the doctors of the law. At 12, could do that. Matthew Henry said everything he said and did was wisely said and wisely done above his years. The grace of God was upon him also, the Bible tells us. God's favor rested on Jesus so completely that there was no displeasure that needed to be addressed whatsoever. God was well pleased with Jesus in a way that he could never be well pleased with any of us. The verb was, the grace of God was upon him. That verb is also the imperfect tense. That his grace, God's favor, kept being on Jesus, kept on being on him. We found more, he found more and more favor with God the more he did the Father's will. The grace of God was upon Jesus because Jesus himself is full of grace and because he demonstrated to the world that he's full of grace. And that's what, by the way, John points to as well. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is, you have to understand, in Jesus, people were drawn to Jesus. There was, there was a magnetism to him that's evident. People were drawn by the miracles that he did, by the way that he taught, and so on. But there was also something about Jesus that made people react viciously. I, I think, um, honestly, I think R.C. Sproul described it the best in his book on the holiness of God. And he talked about the way a super competent person intimidates you. He told the story of a girl um, who uh, he had had in class. And uh, this girl aced every test he ever gave. Was just, I mean, 
a master student, brilliant student, and then one day she turned in a test that was a total bomb, like F. And he said it was so bad, I called her to stay after class and asked her what in the world happened. And she said to him, no one will talk to me. The guys won't even look at me, they avoid me. I don't have any friends. No one likes to be around me because I do so well in my classes, she said. It, um, it, it reminds you of the intimidation factor of a person who has it together, really has it together. Now, if you think that there are people who really have it together in the world, and we've all met people like that, those people are nothing compared to Jesus. And everyone who encountered Jesus knew it. They beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Yes, it was veiled in human flesh, but there was an intangible quality to it that they couldn't explain or understand, but they hated him because of it. And as I mentioned this morning, they hated him even more because he was a Nazarene and he had it. You know, when you come from the trailer park, you're not supposed to have that kind of stuff. And so we learn the holy character of Jesus Christ. Jesus was presented in the temple, and this shows us three things. First of all, he fulfilled the law in all things. Secondly, he was worthy of worship. Who else could be worshipped in the temple but Jesus Christ? And thirdly, he was an exceptional man, exceptional in every way. He grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. All this to say that <clears throat> to us, who are saved, he is precious. He is precious. It's impossible to look in the Word of God and to see, to read about Jesus Christ and not see his glory shining through more and more. And I, I really believe that the purpose of preaching as much as anything else is to pull back the veil and expose to you the full glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't look in Scripture. If you read it with intention, if you're not just breezing over it carelessly, you can't examine the Word of God and not see that the glory of Christ is an undeniable, self-evident glory. You can't. And what do we do when we see that glory fall before him, worship him? Any part of our lives that's not committed to him, we want to commit to him. We want to follow him to the end of the world. You know, if you follow sports, you know there are certain, certain coaches, they say, those guys would run through a brick wall for that guy. There are certain personalities that are just that way, that just inspire you, 